Test. Test. Test one, two. We're good? Oh, great. Man, looking forward to this morning. I told everybody Thursday there was going to be a big surprise. Man, I am so excited. Surprise! (laughs) Surprise. Surprise. I told you it was going to be a big surprise. Wasn't what you were expecting? Well, okay. All right. Uh, Maybe that wasn't the big surprise. But were you surprised? Yeah, yeah. You've probably been surprised before, right, in your life for lots of reasons. Um, Lots of things surprise us uh, all the time. Um, Maybe you've been surprised with a surprise party. Uh, Maybe a birthday party or an anniversary party, going away party. Uh, Maybe you were surprised with a present or perhaps a proposal. Some of you guys were surprised she said yes. (laughs) Perhaps you were surprised to find you were pregnant. Surprise. Perhaps um, you were surprised by a very close lightning strike. Or a wild animal. Now that's, that's happened to us a few times. I know, I think it was about a year ago, um, I was uh, sound asleep and all of a sudden I heard this blood curdling cry. And I woke up and I just, I ran downstairs because it was my wife screaming. And I, I went downstairs and I'm thinking, what in the world's going on? You know, and she's standing at the front door and, uh, and I said, what's going on? And she pointed out there, and there were a bunch of raccoons out on our porch. Well, she normally lets the dog out in the morning. But this is like around 5 o'clock in the morning, and she just woke me up with the scream. And if you can imagine, you're startled. You walk outside. You don't expect to see raccoons, but she did. And, um, and so the, the point of the story is, is that surprises can be exciting and scary. And on that first Easter morning, there was a little of both. Excitement and fear. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Luke's gospel. And and in order to really comprehend the surprise and the significance of this morning, we need to look back to chapter 1. Because chapter 1 kind of informs our understanding of what Luke writes here in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can look it up. Otherwise, I'm just going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke 
the beloved physician, we're told here, set out to write an orderly and accurate account of Jesus' life and ministry. And he wrote specifically to Theophilus so that he might know with certainty the things that he was taught. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was, but there are some clues. His name means friend or lover of God. And Luke refers to him as most excellent, which is a formal type of greeting, a respectful greeting that Luke also uses in the book of Acts when he refers to the governors Felix and Festus. And so most people believe that Theophilus here was most likely a notable man of wealth who may have supported Luke financially so that he could write uh, his gospel, uh, copy it, and distribute it, that along with the, the sequel, the book of Acts. So Luke wants his believers to believe that Jesus is the Christ and to be saved. But he also writes to strengthen the faith of believers. And as you read the book of Luke, knowing that, and, 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 and especially as we look at chapter 24 today, it is in fact a, a strengthening message. One that upholds us and girds us and prepares us for ministry. The thing that's interesting uh, about it is, is that even as Luke writes to strengthen believers, he's writing about a group of believers who really needed to be strengthened and would have benefited greatly had they read this message much later, but they didn't. And so Luke uses them in a sense to tell us the importance of knowing the exact truth of these things so that we would be firm in our faith. That we would have boldness as we share our faith. So Luke here does not paint a picture of perfect saints. He doesn't paint a picture of, of believers that don't struggle, that don't have any doubt. In fact, the first disciples of Jesus were skeptics. They were unbelievers. They disbelieved the things that Jesus had said. In fact, they had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah, but their hopes were crushed underneath the weight of a Roman cross. And despite Jesus telling them and others repeatedly that he must die and rise again. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Nobody was prepared for it. After the crucifixion, everybody was in shock. Jesus, Mother Mary, and the other women were all in mourning. The disciples were all in hiding. <coughs> except for Judas, and you know what happened to him. Not a single person was at the tomb on the third day waiting for Jesus to come out of the tomb. <coughs> Not one. So sometimes when people talk to us, they, 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 they make it sound as if the disciples had a propensity to believe such nonsense. 
You know, that, that of course the Bible would say that he rose from the dead. And this, you know, they were his followers. They were his believers. But when you read the accounts, you realize, no, they were unbelievers. They disbelieved. They loved Jesus, but they didn't believe. Had they really believed, understood and believed, they would have been at the tomb. And they weren't. But early on Sunday morning, on the first day of the week, a group of despondent women were about to be surprised. You see, an empty tomb and an angelic message changed their lives forever. And not only their lives, but all who would believe in him. So this morning... I say to you, surprise, Jesus is alive. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you most of all for sending Jesus to die on the cross. And that Lord, by your power, you raised him from the dead so that today we can celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, we too can live. So Lord, I pray, first of all, that if there be anyone here this morning that has not yet surrendered their life to you, that they would do so. And that for those of us that have surrendered our lives to you, Lord, that you would encourage us in the faith, that you would strengthen us, that you would equip us for the task that you have given to us to evangelize the world and to make disciples. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 24. Just going to be covering 12 verses this morning. And I'm going to take them pretty much one at a time. Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. Now the they of verse 1 are the women who are spoken of in verse 55 of the previous chapter. These were the women who had followed Jesus from Galilee. Now Matthew tells us that uh, after Jesus' crucifixion on Friday, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James were actually there at the tomb watching Jesus be laid in the tomb and then watch the stone be rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. And because it was late, they returned home where they were preparing spices and ointments for Jesus' burial. But they had to wait because the Sabbath was upon them. And in verse 10 of chapter 24, Luke tells us that the two Marys and other women came to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. Now you have to just imagine what they must have been thinking and feeling all through this weekend. But especially that early morning as they were getting ready to go to the tomb. You have to remember that they had just witnessed Jesus's crucifixion. 
They may have witnessed a lot more than that, but, but they were there and they witnessed Jesus being nailed to that tree. And then they saw him give up his last breath. And then they watched his limp body be taken down from the cross, wrapped in linen, and then laid in the tomb. And then the stone rolled in place. Adding insult to injury, they had to go home and wait three days to anoint the body of their Lord. But as soon as they were able, on the first day, they went to the tomb where they were met with their first surprise. Look at verse 2. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. I mean, again, can you picture it? They're, they're traveling. It's still somewhat dark. The sun is rising, but things aren't quite illuminated. And, and uh, most, most commentators believe that they traveled from Bethany to get there some distance. And so they were traveling um, in, in, in the dark. And they get to the tomb expecting to see the stone in front of the entrance to the tomb, but they don't. Scripture says that they saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. And you can just imagine what they must have been thinking. The questions. The one word questions. How? When? Why? Who? They just knew something was not quite right. Something was off. Mark tells us in Mark 16, verses 1 through 4, he says, When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. See, the women knew they wouldn't be able to roll away the stone. And, and I'm not sure when it dawned on them. I, I'm sure they must have thought about it before they left, but maybe in their haste to get to the tomb, maybe they had forgotten about it, and they simply said, who will roll away the stone? And so on, on the way, it seems that they began to verbalize their dilemma. Hey, Mary, when we get there, who's going to roll away the stone? That's a good question. Because if they had any hope of anointing the body of Jesus and they were carrying all the spices and the ointments with them, somebody had to roll away the stone. What they needed, as Alistair Begg likes to say, was some strong, brave men. Some strong, brave men. Where were they? Where were they? They weren't there. I, I know the disciples loved Jesus, but they weren't there. They were cowering in fear 
in an unbelief. And this fact alone tells you how great a love these women had for Jesus. Even after his death, they were still devoted to Jesus and nothing, not even an immovable stone would keep them from him. Now, Matthew tells us that an angel of the Lord uh, came and rolled back the stone. And I don't know if you ever thought about it, but the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. It was rolled away to let others in. Jesus, Jesus could have just beamed right out of there. <laughs> anywhere he wanted. We can't do that. We can't pass through solid rock. So the stone had to be rolled away. And this leads us to the second surprise of the day. Verse 3. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It's one thing to see the stone rolled away. You can have the stone rolled away and the body still be there. But it says that they went in and did not find the body of Jesus. His body wasn't there. Now, um, I realized as I was preparing the message for today, I could get caught up in all of the minutia here. Um, but I'm not going to do that. I'm just simply going to make a statement. If you have any questions about it afterwards, I'll be glad to talk with you. But when you look at the other gospel accounts, you are going to run into some discrepancies. Uh, you just are. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised by it uh, because this is the nature of, of Greco-Roman biographies. It's, it's the nature. They're, they're not giving us all the details. They're not even always putting things in, in neat chronological order and such. We need to remember that. But whatever difficulties remain, we, we find upon closer examination that all these difficulties are easily reconciled. Uh, in fact, you can go online, you can Google harmony of the resurrection uh, of Jesus, uh, harmony of the gospels, and you'll find there are various ways of, of doing that. But what I think is most interesting here is, is that it's the differences that we find in the gospels that actually lend credibility to the story. The fact that there are are, are discrepancies or differences that things just don't line up the same. I mean, when you think about it, you have four different authors writing about this. Based on the eye testimony of, of other witnesses. And it demonstrates that the writers were not in collusion together to try to get the story straight. Hey, listen, if we're going to write this thing, uh, we need to make sure we get our story straight. You know, so tell me, what did you hear? This, and then they pen those things out. That's not what happened. More on that in, in just a minute. But it makes, it makes sense to me then to conclude, based on that, that upon seeing that the stone was rolled away and the tomb being empty, that Mary Magdalene actually left and ran to Peter and John to tell them, as the other Gospels say, that someone had stolen the body. While the other women remained there in a state of confusion, 
and in a short while, experience surprise number three. Look at verse four. It says, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They were perplexed, puzzled, and confused. They were shocked at first to see that the stone had been rolled away. Now, they're totally confused because there's no body. The body of Jesus is missing. And, and while they were trying to gather themselves, suddenly two men stood before them in dazzling apparel. The actual language in the Greek speaks of them shining like lightning. That's how bright they were. And it was at this point, they went from being perplexed to being terrified. They became frightened. And it is as if they hadn't had enough surprises already, they got another one. The angels spoke to them. Look at verse 5. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. What a strange question to ask in a graveyard. Why do you seek the living among the dead? I remember growing up every time... Um, we were in the car and my dad would drive past the cemetery. He would always say, hey, you know how many dead people are in there? And I would go, I don't know. He said, all of them. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Cemetery is not a place where you visit sick people. It's where you go to visit the dead. It's the place of the dead and the angel says why do you seek the living among the dead you should be seeking him out in the world he is not here he is risen the women clearly did not come to see a risen Christ they came to anoint a dead messiah and the angels in our vernacular said, surprise, he's not here. He's alive. This, this had to add to their confusion. I mean, they were already confused, but this is added to their confusion tenfold because you know that the, the images of, of Jesus' bloody dead body were still etched in their minds. They were still grieving. They were still in shock. So the angels reminded them of what Jesus had told them. Look at the remainder of the verse. Remember. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. What was the solution to their problem? Remember. 
Remember what he said. Remember what he told you. For us, it would be remember the scriptures. Remember the words of Christ. You see, the same thing that they told the women, what was true for them is true for us. When we encounter great sorrow and tragedy, when we lose loved ones, when we grieve, when we're hurting, when we wonder what in the world, God, are you doing? That's when we need to remember. We need to remember what Jesus said. We need to ground our life on the word of God. And call to our remembrance and allow the Holy Spirit to bring to our remembrance all the things that we have learned over the many, many years of not just hearing sermons, but of reading the Bible, being in Bible study, reading books, all the truths of, of God that we have learned over the years. When we face those hard times, we need to remember. And folks, we can't remember if we've never been in the Word, if we've never read it, if we haven't studied it, if we are not, if we don't become gospel-saturated people. The two most important words in verse 7 are the words must be. These words indicate intentionality, it, it, purpose, necessity. We, we could substitute a couple of other words. We could, we could substitute the words had to. Must be, had to. Jesus had to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Why? Why must he be delivered and crucified and rise? Why did he have to do that? Because there was no other way for you and me to be saved. It's as simple as that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we have a problem. That problem's called sin. And we were born with a sinful nature. And because of that, we have been separated from God. We are, as Paul says, spiritually dead people. And we cannot resurrect ourselves. God had to solve our sin problem. And he did so in an incredible way. He turned to his only son. And he asked him if he would go. And Jesus says, I will. And I will bear their sin in my body on the tree. I will die in their place for their wrongdoing, for their rebellion, and for their treason against you, Father. I will give my life 
so that they might live. This past Thursday during our Holy Service Communion, one of the things I like to share with people when we take communion is what the writer of Hebrews says, that he says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And in our study of the book of John, we learn that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God the Father poured out his wrath upon sin, not on us, but on Jesus, so that we could go free and have a relationship with him. I like what Billy Graham said. He said, though, and we have to remember this, that without the resurrection, the cross is meaningless. The cross is meaningless. It almost sounds like heresy to say that, that although Jesus' death on the cross was, a necess- was, was necessary, it wasn't sufficient in itself. Our redemption would not be complete without the resurrection. The Son of Man here, we're told, must not only be crucified, but he must rise again on the third day. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins. Why? Because in rising from the dead, Jesus broke the power of sin and death. He defeated Satan. And because he's alive, we too can share in his resurrection life. If the resurrection didn't happen, Jesus would still have been in the tomb. And we would still have been in our sins. Because Jesus is alive, we too can live. Do you understand the magnitude of verse 7 for your life? I mean, really? I've been meditating on that verse all week, just thinking about the implications of it. And it's overwhelming. Jesus left his home in heaven to come to earth to save you from your sins. To save me from my sins. And to bring us into his forever family. He suffered rejection, ridicule, hatred, and death for us. In the garden, he sweat drops of blood because his soul was in unimaginable agony. Agony. And he knew what lay before him. And that's why he prayed. He said, Father, I mean, imagine this. Jesus came for this very purpose, and yet in the garden, he prays, Father, if it's possible, don't let me go through with this. Keep me from the cross. Don't let me go through with this. I know this was the plan. I know I said yes, but don't let me go through with this. It's too much. Then he concludes... But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we know that Jesus followed the Lord's will and went to the cross. Jesus 
was betrayed, denied, and deserted by his closest friends. He would be arrested, beaten, flogged, and marred beyond recognition. He would wear a crown of thorns, thorns jammed onto his skull. His hands uh, and feet would have nails the size of railroad spikes driven into his flesh and bone. But before that, he would have to carry a heavy wooden cross all the way to Golgotha. And there upon the cross, he suffered a lance into his side, into his heart where blood and water flowed. And as excruciating as all this was, it paled in comparison to the pain of separation that he felt on the cross. For the first time in all eternity, Jesus experienced separation from his father. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is no greater suffering than that. That, my friends, is hell. That is what Jesus came to save us from. That was the price that he paid so that we could be reconciled to God. Matthew Henry, who's one of my favorite commentators, said this about the cross. He said, come and see the victories of the cross. Christ's wounds are thy healings. His agonies, thy repose. His conflicts, thy conquests. His groans, thy songs. His pains, thine ease. His shame, thy glory. His death, thy life. His sufferings, thy salvation. That was the price he paid to save us and to make us holy. And he did it all because he loves us and because he wants us to love him in return. Look at verse 9. It says, In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Now, at first glance, when you look at this uh, passage, um, verse 9 and following, at first glance, it appears that Luke is saying that all the women, including Mary Magdalene, went and told the eleven and all the rest at the same time about the angels' words to them. But the text doesn't say that. It simply says they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest, meaning Mary Magdalene to Peter and John and the other women to the other disciples. Based on John's account, 
it appears that Mary Magdalene was not one of the women who stayed and saw and heard the angels speak. In John chapter 20, verse 1, we read, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So we're left to assume that Mary not only saw the stone rolled away, but that she saw that the tomb was empty and then ran to Peter and John. And most scholars believe that Peter and John were staying in Jerusalem by themselves or with, with a few other people, but the rest of the disciples were in Bethany. And the women had returned to tell them. And, and, and verse 11, though, makes it really clear that none of the disciples believed any of the reports that were given to them. Now, it's not a surprise why when you understand the culture of the day. Because women were not considered to be reliable um, witnesses. Um, they were not considered to be credible witnesses. Uh, their testimony was not accepted in a court of law. And what's also interesting is, is, is a, a Jewish male would wake up every morning and, and say his prayers. And, and among them would be this, Lord, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile or a woman. <laughs> so, so even the disciples, even the disciples, I mean, they were Jewish men. They were raised in this culture. The disciples thought that these women were hysterical. They, they, they perceived what they were say, saying as the hysterical ravings of overly emotional women. They didn't believe. But this too is an incredible proof of the resurrection. On the surface you don't see it. But it is incredible. And the reason why is because men at that time would never have written in an account like this if it wasn't true. Well, why, why is that? Well, first of all, because of the prominence it gives to women. And second of all, because it makes them look like cowards. If you were going to perpetuate a, ho a hoax... And, and proclaim that Jesus was alive when he really wasn't alive, you would have put yourself in the story. You would have had the men at the tomb. And they would have been the first proclaimers that he is risen. That's not what happened. They, they did just the opposite of that. And it lends credibility that this is an accurate telling of, of the resurrection now, you would also think that after all the miracles that Jesus did, that his disciples would have believed him. After all, he told his disciples he would be killed, uh, that he would uh, be, be raised from the dead on the third day. But we need to keep a few things in mind. First of all, as I mentioned already, they were all in shock. They were all grieving. 
Now, they could comprehend how a risen Christ, or a living Christ, I should say, could heal others and even raise the dead. But how could a dead Christ raise himself from the dead? See, that's on a completely different level. And for them, they wrestled with this. And then I think, I think this might be true as well, that to actually believe what they were hearing from the women would require vulnerability on their part. Because their hopes had already been dashed. They had already been wounded beyond belief. They, they couldn't handle another punch to the gut. And so they disbelieved. But folks, this is what makes the resurrection so compelling. Not even Jesus' closest friends believed. They were the original skeptics. They didn't think that this was possible. They, it took quite a bit of convincing to get them to believe. And despite the fact that they did not yet believe, we're told in John's gospel and in here in Luke that Peter and John were at least curious enough to go to the tomb to see for themselves. Here in verse 12 of Luke's gospel, we read, But Peter ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen cloths by themselves. And he went home marveling at what had happened. That is the last surprise in our story this morning. Upon arriving at the tomb, Peter sees the linen cloths, the strips, just laying there. Just laying there. No body. And Peter marveled or wondered, but he was still skeptical. Soon, however, he would see Jesus face to face. Soon, Mary Magdalene would also encounter Jesus. Soon, Jesus would appear to more than 500 people at one time. And his disciples would eventually die a martyr's death because of their belief. If you're here this morning and you're skeptical, I want to challenge you to do something. I want to challenge you to pick up this book as you leave today. It's out on the tables out there. It's a book called More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. He too was a skeptic. He set out to disprove the resurrection in Christianity and became absolutely convinced of its veracity. And he has become one of the leading spokesmen um, for the resurrection. So take this book home with you as our gift to you. John MacArthur said this about the resurrection. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the single greatest event in the history of the world. It is so foundational to Christianity that no one who denies it can be a true Christian. A person who believes in a Christ who was not raised believes in a powerless Christ, a dead Christ. 
And if Christ did not rise from the dead, then no redemption was accomplished at the cross. And your faith is worthless. And as Paul says, you are still in your sins. So this morning, if you are not yet a follower of Christ, if you're watching online and you are not yet a follower of Christ, surprise! Jesus is alive. He has risen. And he's here to save if you will come to him. We often present the gospel here at New Life and encourage people to make a decision to step over the line. I want to be a little more forceful this morning. If, if I've just described you, I urge you, to not leave this place until you have settled things with God. Until you go to him and tell him, Lord God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for my sins. And I turn from my sins and I receive you, Lord Jesus, into my life as my Lord and Savior. God will honor a prayer like that if you are willing to pray it and if you mean it. But there's another part that I think is very, very important. And, you know, Jesus said, you know, um, you know whoever is ashamed of me, I, I will be ashamed of him before my heavenly father. If you're not ashamed to be a Christ follower... And if you have made that decision this morning or are about to make that decision this morning, you need to tell somebody. Tell your husband, tell your wife, tell your kids, tell a friend, tell me, tell one of the other elders. But you need to come out of the shadows and say, you know what? I've been going to church my whole life. I've been singing the songs, praying the prayers, reading the scriptures, but I've never surrendered my life to Jesus. I've been living my life my way. Settle that today. Give your life to Jesus. If you're already a Christ follower, my hope for you is that you will never cease to thank God for what he has done for you. That you will praise him loud and often for his salvation. That you would saturate yourself with the gospel. That you would be strengthened in the faith and allow his life to be made manifest in your mortal bodies. Remember, because he lives, we too shall live. And let us continue to ask God for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with those whom we meet every day wherever we may be. And let's also ask him for the courage and the boldness to proclaim Christ in a way that is winsome to others. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray this morning, first of all, just to thank you for what you have done for us at the cross. Lord, we know you did not have to come you would have been perfectly just to let us go to perdition. But you didn't. 
And you endured so much so that we might be saved. Father, it is my prayer that there wouldn't be a single person in the hearing of my voice that would be found outside of your kingdom. That, Lord, that we would all embrace you as Lord and Savior and that we would rejoice together in your great love for us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would conform us to yourself, that we would become more like you, that we would possess your character, have your priorities in life. Lord, ruin us for anything less than your glory. And may you receive all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.